Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Well, they say timing is everything, but is there a science of timing and of time? Our first guest says there is. He's Daniel Pink, the author of When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. He is the best-selling author of Drive, To Sell as Human, and A Whole New Mind. This book, When, examines and analyzes a trove of research and may help us all decide when to make important decisions. Daniel Pink joins me in studio. Great to have you back, Dan. Nice to see you. It's great to be here, Don. Thanks for having me. I must tell you, I enjoyed the book. There's plenty to chew on in there. Lots to talk about. But let's start by talking about the science of timing. What is the science of timing? Well, across a whole array of different disciplines, from economics to social psychology to endocrinology to anesthesiology, you have researchers who are asking very similar questions about how does time of day affect what we do, how we do it, how we make decisions? How do beginnings affect our behavior? How do midpoints affect our behavior? How do endings affect our behavior? And so splattered across all of these disciplines is, if you can, if you can find it and synthesize it, is what amounts to a science of timing and that it allows us to make evidence-based when decisions much more in a smarter, shorter kind of way. They have found that timing at various parts of the day does have a significant influence. Huge. I mean, time of day effects are, are enormous. If you just look at something like um, our performance at work, time of day explains about 20% of the variance in human performance on brain power tasks. So that doesn't mean you, know, you said at the top timing is everything. 20% doesn't mean it's everything, but it means it's a big thing. And, and if we can systematically, on our jobs especially, move certain kinds of work into certain parts of the day, mm-hmm. we can be more productive, we can more, be more creative, we can be actually even a little bit happier. You, you say in the book there are three types of people basically and you have them metaphorically as, as birds. Right. You have larks, you have owls, and you have third birds. Why don't you tell us what that's all about? Sure. This is something called chronotype and, and those larks and owl designations are not mine. There's a whole field of of research called chronobiology, chrono for time, biology for the study of life. And what it looks at is it looks at our rhythms. And one of the things that it has found is that we have certain chronotypes, certain propensities. Some of us wake up early, fall asleep early. Others of us, those are larks. Others of us wake up late, go to sleep late. A big portion of us are kind of in the middle, what I call third birds. But that understanding your chronotype is the first step to matching up what you should do and the time of day you should do it. Well, let's get some sense and give people some sense of, of what these various types uh, should be doing. Let's start with the, uh, with the lark, the, sure. the early risers. Sure. So what, we, what, we, what, what the research is telling us is that we typically have three stages to a day, two, three broad stages to a day, a peak, a trough, and a recovery. Now, most of us go in that order. Larks and third birds go in that order. Owls, about 20% of the population – interesting, somewhat peculiar people, they go through it in the reverse order, recovery, trough, peak. But what it shows is that in general, both our mood and our performance follows this track. That is, in the mornings, our mood is somewhat ele- is, tends to be elevated, and we end up being very good at what are called analytic tasks. Those are tasks that require heads down, focus, attention, writing a legal brief, auditing a financial statement where you have to be vigilant and keep out distractions. That's the ideal time of day for doing that kind of work. The trough, which is in the early afternoon, not good for very much. Actually, some dangerous stuff happens during that period. And that's we're better off doing our administrative work. Then in the final stage of the day, the which I call the recovery, that's an interesting time because our mood is higher than during the trough. 
but we're actually not that vigilant. And then that ends up being a pretty potent combination, which is that we're a little bit looser. Our mood is higher. That makes it a good time to do certain kinds of creative work like brainstorming. And, and again, if we can just be a little bit more intentional about what we do at what time of day, we can do a lot better. Uh, if I remember correctly, I, you, you suggest that the chaff is going to come approximately seven hours after waking up? Yeah, approximately. Yeah. I mean, it varies from, person to, varies from person to person, but it's a fairly regular pattern. You see this. I mean, I think one, you know, as a researcher, one of the exciting things is, is the different ways that scientists are doing research now. Some of it is relying on gigantic data sets. So there's a great study out of Cornell that analyzed half a billion tweets, of all things. Um, and there's a program that can measure the emotional content of text. You throw these 500 million tweets into this program, and what it shows is this a, a pattern of rising mood in the morning, declining mood during the trough, and rebounding mood later, uh, later, later in the day. But that, that trough can be um, – it's not a good time for us. It's very consistent too, isn't it? Through all of these studies, the graph, as you have uh, – illustrated in your book on several occasions, look exactly the same. Well, yeah. No, it's very interesting uh, when, when it comes to how researchers are, who, are, who are essentially – who are in different fields and using different methods of research are coming to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. So there's research that was led by Daniel Kahneman, the famous Nobelist, uh, who along with Alan Kruger, former – an economist, former head of the Council of Economic Advisors for uh, President Obama and some other – Social psychologists and um, and economists looked at uh, just had another way of measuring the pattern of the day. It's the same thing: peak trough recovery, and it seems to be, you know, at some level, deeply ingrained in who we are. I just want to be clear on one thing: is it fair to say that the larks, if you will, the the early risers? Uh, are, are the morning people and sure. the hours of the night people? Absolutely. Because we hear that same all thing. the time. Absolutely. I'm, exactly the same thing. I, I'm, an, I'm a night person or I'm a uh, morning person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely the, same, absolutely the same thing. It just shows our, it's our propensities. But the thing is, is like what, what you have, I mean, we can talk about the distribution of it in the population. You have about 15% of people that are pretty strong larks. You have about 20% who are pretty strong owls. Most of us are, are in the middle. And, of course, our chronotype, our, our propensities change over time. So little kids very larky, get up early. Mm-hmm. Then around age 14, there's a big move toward owliness. I, I'm a father of a 15-year-old, so big change in a propensity mm-hmm. to w- wake up later, go to sleep later. And then once we hit about age 24, we generally return ever so slowly to more larkiness. Women faster than men in general, but we generally return to that larky stage. Let's, let's go to the 15-year-old because yeah. you make this point in the book, and we've been hearing a lot about this lately, although not many people seem to be listening, and that is that you know, kids are going to school too early. These teenagers, it's not, it's not right for them. Explain what that's all it's about. It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, what we have is, we, is teenagers, because of their biology, not because they're lazy, not because they don't care, not because they're being rebellious, wake up later and go to sleep later. It is a fact of biology, and yet schools for teenagers haven't fully adjusted to that. So what you have, this is remarkable. You have the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2014 issued a policy statement, and that's a little bit um, uh, bland, a policy statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics. So instead, think of it as all the pediatricians in America linking arms Mm -hmm. and marching down a street. And they're saying, please, school districts of America, do not start school for teenagers before 8.30 in the morning. It is contraindicated by everything we know about medicine. 
and yet the average school start time in America is eight oh three. So you have so you, so so my own my own son. I have a fifteen year old son. You know, I, I just remember last week. You know, he's leaving the house. He walks to school. He left the house at like seven forty five. I said goodbye to him. I looked at him and I said, this guy is actually not fully awake right now. He's essentially sleepwalking to school. Will that 23 minutes make a, a difference? I think it does. And, and, and actually, empirically, it has. Uh-huh. So what you've seen is that the schools that have actually followed the science and pushed back school start times. Now, we're not talking about pushing it back till 2 in the afternoon. We're talking about starting school for teenagers at 9, 9.15. They've shown dramatic results. They have seen lower dropout rates, improved test scores, even a lower incidence of teen car accidents. The other thing, I and mean, there's some interesting research out of Wake County, North Carolina, it's actually a very cost-effective remedy. And yet, I think a lot of parents, a lot of adults, don't take it very seriously. Uh, and a lot of school superintendents, unfortunately, are – why one school superintendent tell me, hey, Dan, I understand the science. You're right. Here's the thing. When I first became superintendent, my school board president told me, whatever you do, there are three things you don't mess with, bells, balls, and buses. And those end up being implicated in school start times. Well, there, uh, there's an impact on teachers as well. Teachers don't want to work a longer day or work until longer in the day. Uh, there are sports activities after school. That's a big part co- of it too. Co- coaches don't want to coaches. Start that's the balls. Coaches, <clears throat> coaches don't like that because they want to have time for they want to have time for a- athletic events. But you know what we have to what we have to say is like you know what's the school schedule for? Is it for mm-hmm. the convenience of adults or is it for the education of mm-hmm. children? And are we going to follow the science or are we not? And I think. This points out a bigger problem that I try to write about, which is that for whatever reason, we don't take these questions of when seriously enough. We're very intentional. Think of schools. Schools are very intentional. What are we going to do? What are we going to teach? How are we going to do it? We have professional development days and pedagogical methods. Who are we going to do it with? We, we you know, hire the right teachers. But then when it comes to the question of when, mm-hmm. eh, it doesn't really matter. But the research is showing it does matter. It, it has a material effect on every aspect of our life. Let's talk about afternoons because this is another intriguing part of, uh, of the research that you've been working with. Um, what is the phrase I'm looking for here? It's a bad time to be a patient. What do they call it? The, the killing season? Is that oh. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, th- there's uh, – afternoons are really the Bermuda Triangles of our day when it comes to uh, certain healthcare things. And it's, it's alarming. And again, this is research – this is, again, one of the, 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 I think, exciting things about research today is how much these big data sets can yield insights. So some of this has come from looking at, say, 90,000 surgeries, okay? That's a lot, all right? And taking those 90,000 surgeries and saying, hmm, let's match them up against time of day and see what we can learn. And one of the things that they've learned is, let's take anesthesia errors. Anesthesia errors are four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m., okay? Uh, Mm. You look at uh, hand-washing in hospitals. Again, uh, hand-washing in hospitals deteriorates significantly during the afternoon. You look at colonoscopies. Endoscopists find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams for the same population. Physicians more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in the afternoon than in the morning. It's just a parade of poor performance and even danger in the afternoons. So if you're talking of an analysis of 90,000 people or situations, yeah. that's pretty convincing. 
I think it's extremely convincing. <laughs> I, I think it's extremely convincing, and, and I and I think that that's 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 the point. It's like you know a lot of the research that that is done, you know, uh, you know, you know, here at the University of Missouri or Washington University in the world of of social science, especially, will take. We took seventy one undergraduates. We put thirty five in this condition. We put thirty six in this condition, and we ran an experiment, and now we draw conclusions from that, and that's perfectly valid. But what some of this research is doing is let's take a half billion tweets. 90,000 surgeries, 2 million test scores, and it's yielding, I think, some very impressive insights. And again, this is happening because most people are in the trough at this juncture. Exactly right. Uh, the, 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 and what we have is the architecture of a workplace, particularly a healthcare workplace, isn't taking breaks seriously yeah. enough. The antidote to a lot of these problems, and it's been in hospitals, is taking more breaks, and taking certain kinds of breaks. So, for instance, a great antidote to the hand-washing problem has been giving nurses more breaks, particularly social breaks, where they can detach from the work, go out for a walk, do something with somebody else. They come back replenished. They're more likely to wash their hands. But as you say in the book, when they go out for that walk, don't talk about work. Right. Well, there's a, there's a lot to be said for – I mean, this has changed my view of things. As someone like many of us who's often tethered to my mobile phone, there's some very good research when it comes to breaks on the importance of full detachment. Not semi-detachment, but full detachment. Just taking a real break, detaching from work altogether. Leave your phone on your desk. Go talk about something else besides how awful your boss is. Leaving the phone on the desk is going to be a tough habit to break, uh, Daniel Fink. I'm, so, I'm sorry to say that. Well, I, I did not bring my phone in here with us so I could be fully present with our interview. I have to take a break. We'll do that now. We're talking with Daniel Fink. He's the author of the book, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. We'd like to get your thoughts about timing and perhaps how it influences your life or how you'd like to learn how to make it influence your life for the better. Give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you'd prefer to send us a tweet, do so at STL on air. Back with Daniel Pink in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our conversation with author Daniel Pink. He wrote, When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Uh, Dan, not surprisingly, uh, we're getting some phone calls. So let's get that part of it started. Many questions remain. We'll bring in Phil calling from Richmond Heights. Phil, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, hi. I'd just like to ask your guests to comment on the influence of time of the day on crime. Um, mm. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, I actually don't know that research very well. Uh, from what I do understand is, not surprisingly, there's more crime at night, and it's probably because uh, – and, and there's some, there, is, there is some interesting research in this. Uh, some of it is uh, – has to do with um, the fact that darkness gives cover, uh, but some of it also has to do with there's a, there's, a, there's a piece of research in social psychology called the dark triad of, of traits, which are Machiavellianism, sociopathy – uh, other kinds of negative traits, and there's some evidence that those traits express themselves more robustly at night than in the um, in the in the rest of the day. Uh, I, th I thought I'd seen something, um, and maybe it was someplace else, about the criminal justice system and the impact that that has oh. uh, on on 
uh, on sub- subjects. Oh yeah, yeah. there's there's some there's some great research on 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 judicial and jury decision making over mm. the course of a day. So it, alarming uh, things. So for instance, there's a very famous study out of Israel about parole boards, judges and parole boards making decisions. Yeah. And what it found is that if you're going for parole, you have a much greater chance of being granted parole early in the day and immediately after a break than you do immediately later in the day or before a break. So the, the, you're, I mean, it's, it's chilling. So if you, this research shows that if you go for parole right before a judge takes her break, you have literally a single-digit percentage chance of getting parole, whereas if you do it after the break, wow. I know, you have maybe yeah. a 60% chance. There's also some, again, back to the afternoons, there's some experimental research showing that when, you, when jurors are operating during their peak, that is their peak analytic time, uh, they will treat the, the, the famous experiment dealt with two defendants, uh, two different defendants, same set of facts. One was named Robert Garner. The other one was Roberto Garcia. And so jurors operating at their peak time will treat those defendants the same under the same set of facts when they deliberate during their peak. But when they deliberate during their off-peak, they're actually more likely to resort to racial stereotypes and on the same set of facts, exonerate Robert Garner and convict Roberta Garcia. When is the trough time for, for owls? I mean, if they're afternoons for most of us. It's about the same, actually. Really? Yeah, it's about the same because it's sort of between the recovery and the reco- – it's, it's sort of between the recovery and the, the peak. As you said, their recovery and peak are swapped. Mm. So what is your recommendation for people just t- to lay off anything that's significant between no, noon and actually, 5 o'clock? You know, I think the big thing is, is, uh, is breaks. Yeah. And one of the things that I found most convincing in this whole range of research is the research on breaks. To my mind, the research on breaks, the science of breaks is where the science of sleep was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I, I remember you know, working in environments where someone 15 years ago, 20 years ago, someone would come in and say, oh, I just pulled an all-nighter. Yeah. I got by with two hours of sleep. And, you know, and for someone like me who had a hard time doing that, I would yeah. say, oh, man, it's like I'm a wimp. And then the science of sleep emerged and we said, wait a second, that guy's an, a fool. He's hurting his performance. He might be hurting our performance. I think that's where breaks are right now. What we know is that we should be taking more breaks and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And what I do myself is every afternoon I write down two breaks that I'm going to take that afternoon. I write down what time and what I'm going to do. Now, these are not massive breaks. These are 10, 15-minute breaks. I'll take a walk around the block or around two blocks. I will – you know, I just happen to have a post office, maybe a seven-minute walk from my house. So I'll bring something. I, I lead a very exciting life. I'll bring something to the post office, walk seven minutes, come seven minutes back. That's a 15-minute walk break. You'll also take a nap from time to time, as I, you recommend. I will take a nap, and I become a little bit of a nap convert. When I took naps in the past, I hated it because I would wake up feeling groggy. I would also kind of be ashamed of myself for being weak. And I realized I was napping wrong. The ideal nap, the research shows, is be only about 10 or 20 minutes long. And those very, very short naps have incredible restorative power without that what's called sleep inertia. Do you have to be asleep or can you just rest? I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I'm, it's actually remarkably easy for people over time to actually fall asleep. To me, it's akin to meditation. Like when you first start meditating, it's hard to keep your mind focused on the present. But as you get better – you can you can get better at it, and you know what I find is that I can usually on a nap I can usually fall asleep in seven or eight minutes, nap for fifteen, and get some good restoration that way. All right. Let's go back to the phones. We'll bring in Bill calling from Ferguson. Bill, thanks for waiting. You're on the air with Dan Pink. 
Hi. Uh, I would like to ask uh, a question about melatonin. Melatonin uh, drops in our bloodstream, our production drops, uh, at least by the age of 40. And supplementation with melatonin now is gaining a wide degree of acceptability with all kinds of diseases, for instance, Parkinson's, uh, Alzheimer's, kidney disease, heart disease, and so on. So uh, since it is so, uh, it's recognized as being a very important thing in the circadian rhythms, I would just uh, would like his comment on uh, melatonin for over a lifetime. Thank you. Yeah, I actually, unfortunately, don't know very much, uh, very much about that. Um, um, I don't know. I don't know the research well, but there are some natural changes in our physiology. Melatonin, melatonin being one of them. Um, you know, my view on all of this is that if you're going to experiment with supplements, you should talk to your your, your physician first. I, I think it's 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 there's there's so much variation at the physiological level that it's I'm leery about making sort of broad recommendations on that. I have a couple of emails I want to read here, but yeah. before doing that, uh, I want to be sure to get this in, and that is the fact that you say that lunch is the most important meal of the day, not breakfast. Yeah. Why? Well, here's the thing. Like I looked into the research on breakfast, and I, I, here's the thing: I'm a devout breakfast eater. I always eat breakfast. I never skip breakfast. And the research on breakfast is shows that healthy people eat breakfast, all right? But they're observational studies, all right? And so it doesn't necessarily say that breakfast causes these people to be healthy. It just could be that healthy people are eating breakfast, and it has nothing to – it's incidental to that. Sure. And, um, and then some of the research is funded by – some of the long-term research is funded by the cereal companies. And so I think that the, the research on is breakfast – you know, essential for you, important for you. I think the answer is a definitive maybe. Um, I don't think it's harmful. I just don't. I just don't know. The research, though, especially over the last few years, and a lot of it's coming out of Scandinavia and South Korea on on lunch is pretty remarkable. What it's showing is that lunch. We can think of lunch as, in some ways, a subset of breaks. That lunch is where you are, as we were talking earlier, detached, where you leave your desk, where you talk about something other than work. Uh, where it has the components of both attachment and detachment and autonomy, where you have a choice, those can be extraordinarily uh, restorative. We're not talking two-hour martini-soaked lunches. We're talking <laughs> 25 minutes away from your desk to have to have a lunch. Let's uh, get this email out of the way from Bridget. I'm wondering if Daniel Pink can comment on the role, if any, of serotonin on chronotypes. For instance, some people experience low serotonin levels in the morning, others in the evening. Yeah, that's an interesting point. There is um, – um, there is, there are obviously are changes in our neurotransmitters over the course of a day. Uh, I don't know, um, I, I, I don't know enough about the research to make broad conclusions, but I, I think it's fairly idiosyncratic. Though one of the things, if you think about serotonin as as a neurotransmitter that affects our mood, um, that low serotonin in the morning is going to prevent you from hitting that morning peak. The other thing that it shows in terms of there's some good research on therapy showing that. Um, um, that therapy can be more effective in morning appointments than in afternoon appointments, in part because of alertness and in part because of those typically rising serotonin levels. Sarah in St. Louis says, I happen to have a job that I need to get up at 4.45 a.m. for, poor, poor thing. However, my normal sleep pattern is from 11 p.m. to 7 or 8 a.m. Yeah. I can get a surge of energy at 8 p.m., and that should be when I start shutting down. I'm having a heck of a time getting my body used to this schedule. And I've had it for over three years. Any help you can give me? 
Yeah, that's a really, really tough problem. Yeah. And what you see, there's a lot of research on what, what's typically called shift work, where people are working even more out of sync with their natural rhythms. And it's, it's actually really not good for your, uh, for, your, for your health. There's a lot of deleterious health effects from, from shift work. On that, um, I, 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 do, I don't want to offer up breaks as a panacea for things, but I, I really think that it's a matter of, of uh, being intentional about breaks and uh, throughout the course of the day as a way to restore some of your energy and some of your alertness. In particular, what I would recommend are breaks outside, uh, in part because of the light and in part because of the replenishing effects of nature. Breaks where you're moving. There's a lot of evidence showing that moving breaks are better than stationary breaks. And, you know, this is true even for introverts. Social breaks beat solo breaks. And so uh, but that's, a, that's, a, th- that's just going to mitigate some of the, the downside of that. It's a very, very t- a tough schedule. And, and when you see people who are working woefully out of sync with their natural rhythms, uh, the effects are not good. The uh, the uh, I just lost my train of thought here. We had uh, a caller we can't take uh, who is talking about the military uh, application for this kind of research. Is there anything going on there? That's very interesting. I mean, I do think that the the that the military, like a, any kind of other uh, set of workers, needs to be intentional about the the when of their their workplace. It's actually interesting. The Air Force Academy uh, has been one of the people. Uh, the Air Force Academy, which is Who's the cadets there are 18, 19, 20 years old. They've actually um, moved their first class a little later in the day and actually have seen rising uh, academic performance as a result of that. So, so the Air Force Academy is one place that is following some of the science about how teenagers, young people actually navigate the day. Our time is winding down, but I, I do want to get one question in that I found rather intriguing. You mentioned the word sink before, and you yeah. have a chapter titled Sinking. Uh, and you say that that's sinking, not singing, but singing is part of the question. That is the, the choral group and how beneficial that is for people who are involved in choral groups of all things. It is extraordinary, this research. Of all the research in this, in this book, that is the one that really blew me away. So I do write about how how would a group synchronize in time? And if you look at the research on choral singing, not just singing solo, but singing with other people, it's stunning. You, it has a, a physiological effect. It boosts our immune, immune response. Actually, cancer patients respond better if they're doing choral singing. It has a big boost on mood. Um, it, I, I really think that choral singing, if you look at the research, is as good for us as physical exercise. The other thing that, that syncing with other people does is that it makes us – it elevates our mood. It gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. And it makes us more likely that we're going to do things like help other people, hmm. collaborate, do good deeds. As I said at the beginning, there is so much to chew Thank on you. in this book, and we've just scratched the surface. I heartily recommend it, folks. Thank you, <laughs> this is really, really interesting stuff. Daniel Pink, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. The book is The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, a reminder that he will be appearing tonight in a Left Bank book signing and discussion at the Ethical Society on Clayton Road. That's happening at 7 o'clock. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. KWMU.